This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Jenny. I'm Eric. And we're going to talk about Yevgeny Zemyatin's novel, We, from 1924, I think. Mm. I think that's right. Well, the first published version was an English translation in 1924. The novel was, manuscript was completed in 1921, although Russian scholars often think of it as having been written in 1920. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and what the my only, the, Yeah, The only reason I mention the dates is that uh, to the extent that you want to see the novel as a reaction to things that were going on in the Soviet Union at the time, um, it's, it's good to know that it's 20 rather than 24, say, when the when Lenin's new economic policy comes into play. Right. Mm. I think it's important. Uh, in the introduction to the audiobook, um, which, uh, Jenny, did you get hear that? Uh, I listened to the beginning of it, but no, I reread it in the print. Okay, so the introduction to the audiobook has a, um, uh, about the new translation, and the translator also makes the argument that it's not a very Russian novel. It's much more of an English novel. And in the English tradition, I thought that was a very interesting argument. And I actually quite see it as well. I don't see it, it if it's reacting to Soviet Russia, it's not as much about Soviet Russia as uh, I, I was expecting. I think it's more reacting to just revolutions in general and whether or not a revolution can be the last revolution. There's that. There's that. That's explicitly mentioned. Yeah, because he lives oh. through several. <laughs> Well, what do you think, Eric? Is it a Russian novel? <laughs> um, I, I do think that it's a, a Russian novel in that it has uh, that that same lugubrious concern for the the relationship between the rulers and the ruled that you see going back certainly to Dostoevsky and uh, and Tolstoy, um, and it also plays games with vernacular Russian versus some other kind of language, in this case mathematics. And in that sense, it goes back to the the big Russian novels that exploit the difference between Russian and the then intellectual language of French that is intellectual for the Russians. Um, But it's also clear that that Samyatin, who who read English as a child um, and learned English uh, well as a vernacular of his own when he was working in England, um, is influenced by Wells. And uh, apparently, he edited a collection of Wells in trans uh, for tra- in translation into Russian. So he's w- well familiar with Wells, and it it does seem like a sort of Wellsian. Uh, but it, it also reminded me of a story by Ian Forster called "The Machine Stops." Mm-hmm which is an underground sort of story of the end of a dystopia, I guess. Well, it also, I was thinking of Stanislaw Lem, but Lem was born around when this novel came out, so the influence would have had to be the opposite direction. <laughs> well, time travel's possible, you know. <laughs> sure. Arthur Clarke certainly acknowledges that in Childhood's End. Mm-hmm. You can remember the future. Oh, really? Yeah, he talks oh. about somebody remembering the future. Hmm. I think that's Ray Bradbury too. That sounds like Ray Bra- something Ray Bradbury would say. 
perhaps. Mind you, he he remembers every 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 story of his is about childhood in some way. Oh, no, <laughs> you know? but in childhoods and the, uh, the the overlords who are in some sense relevant here because of the importance of the guardians in Samyatin's novel, the overlords. Uh, look like devils, and it is explained to us that the reason that we see them that way is that we, the human race, has always remembered the future in which they will come down and conquer us. Huh. It's a, a very synchronicity kind of uh, Arthur Kessler sort of thing. Uh, I don't know who Arthur Kessler is, so you better explain that a little bit more. Uh, I, happily, uh, uh, he, he wrote, he popularized the term synchronicity, meaning that there were other orders of time, relationships among time, than the Aristotelian beginning, middle, end, chains of cause and effect, and so on. Um, mm. And he wrote a, a book that's interesting, an aesthetic theory called Insight and Outlook. Um, he's written a couple of books on the ego. He was a very powerful novelist who was banned Um because he was a he favored communism under the McCarthy era, things uh, of his like um, Darkness at Noon were uh, not sorry Spartacus was Arthur no Darkness at Noon was Kessler Spartacus was Howard Fast or the other way around no they're both they're both uh, I'm looking at them now they're both him uh, both Darkness in 1940 and Gladiators aka Spartacus. Good, thank you for the reminder. Um, so uh, his communist leanings make him somebody that also fits into this uh, because Samyatin was, after all, uh, a Bolshevik. He was a, a committed communist until uh, the the enactment of the Soviet state um, began to diverge quite strongly from what he thought it should be doing. Yeah, I don't see this book as indicting uh, socialism or communism. Or so the Soviet Revolution as it was, I guess in in the time. But I know he did later leave uh, Zamyatin left Russia for France um, uh, under Stalin. But that's much later. It is later, uh, although he starts being uh, at odds with the writers on the writing community um, as early as as the composition of We, which he couldn't get published because it was seen as heretical as uh, politically uh, reactionary. Uh, but I think... Um, I think I, I, it's a science fiction novel more than, more than even like 1984 is. Oh, I think absolutely. It's, I think it's much more like Wells than, than you know, 1984. And Brave New World is, it's not even as... Uh, Brave New World is almost an indictment of something. I don't see this as an indictment of anything specific uh, other than, you know... The the one that's explicitly mentioned, which is the the rational who's the the guy who rationalized human uh, production, Taylor. right? So he he is he is at one point in the book in the novel he says uh, our main character says that how come it there aren't many many uh, books written about him and there's thousands on Kant and and all the other philosophers well. That's that. That's what this dystopia came from: is the rationalization of all human activity to make it more efficient. Right? It's a ruthless efficiency of the worker. Well, as it's I said, like, that 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 brings us back to Tolstoy. And, and, okay. Right. And and uh, and Bulgakov. I mean, they're 
there, there are other people, uh, Bogdanov, uh, an engineer, Menem, um, already in 1905 or 1908, whenever that book comes out, is talking about the way in which uh, people become cogs in the machine. Uh, and I do think that this book is very important for um, its, its critique of industrialism, um, not necessarily totalitarian industrialism. It, it works in the United States as well. It works anywhere where people are made interchangeable, which to some extent uh, we all rely on. I mean, you, you go into a restaurant and, you know, you don't you typically say, gee, I won't eat here if my favorite server isn't available. You know, mm. you somebody's going to have to do the, the waiter's job. And um, that, that's what happens with division of labor and uh, large organizations. And a, a book like we, I think, is a, a powerful and uh, motive to explore the downside of the efficiencies that grow out of industrialization. I, I do think that it makes a lot of sense that uh, Soviets at the time that the book was written saw it as indicting them in particular because they were trying to rationalize the social system. They were looking for a command economy. Big Brother seems to, I mean, the benefactor, it depends on mm. you know which translation you're reading, um, clearly can stand for Lenin. Um, on the other hand, I think that this book, frankly, in some ways, is much more interesting than Wells' science fiction um, in terms of what isn't part of the social critique. That is, the, the struggle that D-503 has to try to be a good citizen of the one state or the United States um, against uh, what he feels as a need to to do, do other things that mark him as an individual. That that internal struggle uh, between, if you like, in Freudian terms, the ego and the superego, um, that's that's real. And I think people have that in many environments. I think this book goes well beyond the social critique, and I think the social critique goes well beyond the Soviet state. But I can understand yeah, why the Soviet state didn't like it. <laughs> I get. I guess it's. It's just. It, it doesn't seem targeted at them. Uh, in, I, I think you do have to push because Lenin is is not. Uh, he's not Stalin. You know. He, he's not. He and even. Uh, Nineteen eighty four is is much is it itself is often cited as not being about Russia exactly as as being about imperialism and uh, propaganda and and sort of empire and 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 the rationalization of truth <laughs> for the streamlining of uh, it, it, it's a critique of britain as much as it's a critique of russia in a certain way um and i think yes but uh one one thing that has uh, we mentioned is the guardians now i know where that came from because i studied philosophy guardians uh is comes from the first utopia slash dystopia I think probably in the history of uh, literature, and that's um, the Republic by Plato, where Plato sets out this mythical world called the Republic, in which the state is rationalized and organized, and there's going to be three sets of people. There's going to be the guardians, the uh, bron there's the bronze, the silver, and the gold, and the gold are the the intellectual leaders, the philosopher kings. And the guardians are the silver-blooded people. Those are the people who are going to 
uh, fight the wars and keep the state in order, and police. And then there's the bronze, and that's the workers. And he says, you know, it's possible to move from one level to another, but basically the golds have to be educated and the guardians have to do what the golds tell them. And uh, I, in this, it's not an exact analogy because the guardians uh, in this society are also one, you know, they're not actually much higher up than the regular people. They're practically equal, if not exactly equal. Only the benefactor is above everybody else. Well, um, yeah. In the structure. I, 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 I guess it depends by what you mean by, by up. Um, most people notice that the nomenclature in we uh, assigns uh, consonants to, uh, to men and vowels to women. Yeah, I noticed that. I thought that was really fun when I was I was seeing every time a character is introduced, I was like, it's going to be a girl. Yep, Val. <laughs> um, but what people don't as often notice is that the absolute value of the number corresponds to social class. Oh, interesting. Um, so you, that is the, the character known as you, um, mm-hmm has no number at all. We're not told use number. Um, the lowest number we get is R13, who is a poet, and poetry is deprecated in this society. And we're told that he has broad lips. And yeah, like an African's lips. Exactly, and sputters when he speaks. Um, to an American, this is quite obviously... Um, a, a symbolic way of suggesting that there's uh, an underlying racism here, that uh, the lowest class are, are the, the non-whites. But mm. to a Russian who would know instantly that the greatest writer, certainly the greatest poet in Russian history, is Pushkin. And that Pushkin was proud of and was known to be part African-American. Hmm. I mean, excuse me, not African-American, part African. Um, to have R13 be shown to be like Pushkin and deprecated by the one state is to make the then contemporary Russian readers understand that what the one state is doing is denying a crucial part of the, the heritage in the soul of Russia. Hmm. So we, we start with that as the lowest number we get, and we work our way up, and I-330 and D-503 are both three-digit numbers, although because men are more important than women, obviously, in this paternalistic society, um, uh, D-503 is the highest three-digit number that we see. But the Guardian is S-4711. And the fact that that even if you don't know the relationship between 4711 and its cultural reference, uh, the fact that that is the uniquely highest absolute number attached to any individual suggests that maybe that is the guardians are the very highest class just under the well doer or the benefactor. Hmm. 
Well, it's certainly the, that's not the official word. That's not the official line, right? Everybody's uh, it, we are all in this together is the idea. That's true, but you know when when D five hundred three is taken to the doctor by S forty seven eleven and finds out that he's got a soul which is incurable, S forty seven eleven could turn him in. When S forty seven eleven presumably is spotted by D five hundred three in the crowd. When he is down among the Mephi, S forty seven eleven could turn D five hundred three in, but he doesn't. And the the fact that D five hundred three, that S forty seven eleven, may or may not have allegiance to we're all in this together, may or may not be a trustworthy functionary of the well doer. That suggests that things are much more complicated here than the party line. In fact, I think things are much more complicated than the party line from the very first line of the book. Well, and I'm not sure I agree that poets are so much lower in society. I mean, I think the the narrator thinks so because he values rationality. But if you didn't have the poets, who would write the stanzas of hygiene? Isn't that what they were called? Oh, stanzas on sexual hygiene and the immortal tragedy. Uh, wasn't everybody supposed to do that? We can appeal to Jesse here, Jenny. Uh, My recollection is that um, what Socrates explains in the Republic about the poets is not that they would ban the poets. What he says is, if someone should come among us who has the power to make us see what we have not seen, that is an imaginative poet, we would bow down before him, we would anoint his head with oil, but he w- we would send him away. But yeah. We prefer the more austere poets that we use in our education and training. Uh, yeah, that's a good parallel. Yeah, it's, it's not, uh, it's not a, it, often people read it as saying, you know, he would ban poetry. And it's true, he would. It, all poetry that doesn't serve this, the state's functioning better. Exactly. Uh, because it, it's confusing to the... Um, to the bronze it's good for the gold the gold the gold can appreciate it but the you know uh it's the one one word i really loved uh, that i learned i guess recently again uh prol feed p-r-o-l-e-f-e-e-e-d right and uh, it was in regards to the republican party i think was it was eating its own prol feed right it it was not understanding that the propaganda that it's putting out to the masses is not actually true and it's not actually good to eat. Right. Uh, and yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, it's exactly right. Is if you eat your own pro feed, you're going to believe things that are not good for your beliefs. Yeah. Right. And I've, there's the part where he says, our poets don't soar in the Empyrean anymore. They came down to earth. They keep step with us under the strict mechanical march of the music factory, and their lyres play the morning buzz of electric toothbrushes. <laughs> right. You know, I, I love sure. I I love the physical description of this. Like the 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 world is like nothing you've seen in science fiction that it, it before. At least nothing I've seen. The floors, the walls, everything's transparent. Right. Mm-hmm. The only thing that is not transparent is your skull. And they wish he, he, our main character wishes at one or thinks that at one point we're going to have to develop transparent skull technology. 
technology <laughs> so that we can see inside what people's going on. Because all we have right now is the eyes. And although the eyes get, give you an idea of what's going on, it's not a clear reading. And clear is that word that repeats again and again and again throughout every... I think it's mentioned in every chapter or every uh, diary entry. You know, I'm not... It's not clear. I'm not feeling clear. It's, it's the metaphor that goes through every chapter, I think. Of course, it's built into to every language. It is, but here it's literally true no, as no, well. Of course, but but when you say he's a man of vision, um, <laughs> she has a wonderful perspective on these things. Um, that stands against looking at things through rosy-colored glasses, finding that something is obscure. If you have a good vantage on something, I mean, the 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 imagery of sight correlating with the imagery of intelligence is um, and knowledge, it, it's not just Indo-European, it's in every language. Uh, it conflates intelligence, the, the two meanings of intelligence exactly. as well. It, exactly, because you can't hide your, your secrets. That's um, right. And with mo and more access to intelligence, you are making more intelligent decisions. Exactly. And so when you see that the one time you're allowed to draw the curtains is for right. sexual hour, um, that among other, I mean, sure, it suggests a holdover of something like modesty, but it also suggests that there is at least one force in human, human nature that is a bit obscure. Well, and they say that George Orwell read this book before he wrote 1984, and <clears throat> maybe he takes that inside your brain idea, Jesse, and that's where he came up with ThinkSpeak, perhaps? Yeah. Maybe it was his solution to that problem. It, it, it's, it's, uh, I read 1984 well before we, and I mean, uh, you can see how heavily it, 1984 is quite different, but it heavily relies on what is, uh, this is, I think, the earliest dystopia of its, of its genuine kind that we come to think of as uh, Brave New World and, and 1984 and many, many other smaller, I guess, in stature novels. But it's definitely, it's playing a role in this, in 1984. Uh, well, Orwell published a review of We before he published 1984, so hmm. that's that's not a an unlikely speculation. Orwell also speculated that Huxley had read it before, and uh, knowing what was in Huxley's library, that also seems to be a likely speculation. But Huxley did explicitly say that wasn't so. He hadn't read it until afterwards. Uh, since, like all writers, he lies for a living. I don't know if we should believe him, but I can't assert that he's, <laughs> that he's wrong. Um, there, I think, you, you know, when you say of a kind or of this kind, I, I think you're right. I think, frankly, for my, myself, this is not that I've read them all, but I think this is the greatest of the of the 20th century dystopias, but you can see pieces of it earlier. For example, in uh, Ralph 124, 1C1+, also written by someone with scientific training, Hugo Gernsback, um, that was first serially published in 1912. The main character, Ralph, um, lives in a tower made of glassonium. <laughs> and... Uh, you know that this a lot of the notions that that Samyatin is using um, were available to him, but I don't say that to in any way limit uh, or restrain the praise that I have for what he does. 
Um, to me, what makes it so great is not just its thematic extensibility, uh, but the character development. The character oh, yeah. development is amazing. It's also beautiful on, on a sentence-by-sentence level. Many, many, many of it is laugh-out-loud hilarious. Um, many of it is, is, you know, the very clever insight. Um, and it, it is, I mean, we've got a character who is having an existential crisis of some kind. He cannot believe the things that he believes, and yet he is motivated to change them and also report on them. Right? He is. He is. Uh, he he's joining a group. No, he's not joining a group. He's reporting on them. No, he's not reporting on them. And every diary entry ends on the day. You know, it's it's not all written in retrospect. It's each one is written in retrospect. So you can sort of see the pattern is happening and sometimes they end in the middle of a sentence. It's, it's a, uh, it's a pretty unique way of, of, of doing it for a, I've, I haven't seen that exactly in a, um, in a novel of this kind of dystopia novel. To me, that drifting off that he always does of his thoughts, it's almost a physical representation of how he can't quite come to terms with what he's supposed to think and what he actually might think. And so he mm-hmm. just, he never finishes a complete thought or sentence. It just kind of trails off. And then the next day he might say the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Really he's clever. determined, determined to think, you know, and he, he, looking back over his old notes, he says, you would think I'm crazy. I'm not going to, I'm going to strike that out. Well, maybe I should leave it in. Cause it's a, it's a quivering of every needle on the uh, seismograph or something. And, sure. I mean, that, that footnote where he says, I don't know why anybody would like this. I like boots, you know, <laughs> It just throws out anything romantic, and and yet uh, there are allusions there to all kinds of romantic poetry and references. To me, um, I don't. I know this was not clear to me on my first reading of the book, but on subsequent readings, I see this uh, existential crisis that you referred to um, visible on the first line. Mm-hmm. Right when he says, "D five hundred three says." This is merely a copy, word for word, of what was published this morning in the state newspaper. Um, he is aware to himself that you're not supposed to write. You're not supposed to have self-expression, except in that austere way. And he's also aware that someone might come in and look at his diary when he's away. And so his first words are words of self-justification, that the activity I'm engaged in is is licit, not illicit. But then the thing that he quotes, in fact, is a statement in the state newspaper about the marvel of the integral that's under construction and for which he is the chief builder. So it, it's this desire to to be an individual and be known as an individual that stands against the very name of the ship that he's building. Mm. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the integral, I, I mean, anyone who studied the history of mathematics will know that, that Newton invents the integral sign, um, as an elongation of the word S for summation. And so in a sense, D503 and S4711 are engaged in doppelganger activities. Mm. I, I think uh, I want to come back to that, but um, 
about the names of the characters, uh, I, I did. I want. I was going to mention it if nobody else did. That the that the vowels are girls and the consonants are guys. I think this system won't work out that well. And and I also don't think that's enough. Assuming a, a large population of the planet, they're going to run out of names real fast if they don't extend those numbers some. Uh, but you know, there's this would if we just do a random distribution. We're looking at a lot more males than females, um, but uh, given all that aside, let's just look at uh, his 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 new girlfriend—not his old girlfriend, but his new girlfriend. I three thirty, right? Mm-hmm. I was thinking it's a text message, you know, like I, I do a lot of text messaging these days, and uh, I, I like that three thirty. I was thinking, is that boobs and bum? You know, like and like. It's you can make hearts if you use the left. You know, you can, it's like text messaging. It looked like because if you look at the shape of the previous girlfriend, uh, what was she? O something? Uh, o ninety. O ninety, right? Um, she was round, right? <laughs> the description of 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 her, she had she had like baby fat on her wrists. Her mouth was always making an O shape. Um, she sort of was surprised all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I three thirty is described as thin, right? Right. And with a razor um, mouth. Uh, right. And also just the shape, like her name is like a description of her. So I was thinking, is if that's true of of I three thirty, is that true of all of them? And I was thinking, well, D five o three. I don't know what that means. Does D have a significance? Um, I don't know, but that's the only one I spotted. Do you see, see anything else to this? This numerology of names? Um, 4711, I think, has a very significant uh, is a very significant number in its own right. Um, 4711, there, there are different stories about it. Um, and so there's a question of how it's understood culturally, both in 1920 and now, and uh, how we now with retrospect are able to construct it starkly. But the general mythology about 4711 is this, that um, once upon a time, as you know, um, and this is still true in, uh, in most places in Europe, um, street names are uh, put on placards that are attached to buildings that are at the corners of the streets. And, uh, when Napoleon's army uh, was occupying much of what's now Germany, uh, of course, this is before there's a unified Germany. Uh, so let's just say they're occupying Cologne. Um, the the people who were resident there pulled the street signs off their own buildings because the French, being unfamiliar with the city, were trying to rely on maps and they couldn't because the the markers were gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so the French made their own maps in which they numbered the buildings and they distributed their maps to their own people. So if somebody was running some kind of errand or doing some activity, uh, they could consult their own maps and find out where they were going. The, the legend goes that the, the biggest office building in Cologne um, was numbered by the French as 4711, and it was taken over as the local headquarters by the French. When finally Napoleon was defeated, 
Um, that largest building, um, in, in other look, uh, tellings of the story, it's actually the house occupied by the person who owned the company that made Cologne. Um, that number was appropriated to say, see, now we're back in charge. And mm. they offered a new Cologne known as 4711, the number on that building. So there's a wonderful ambiguity in that number. 4711 is, on the one hand, the sign of having been oppressed, and on the other hand, the sign of throwing off that oppression. And so S4711 fits this beautifully, both in the the wishy-washy shape of an S, and in knowing that he has the power of the state, and yet, for reasons that we never do know, doesn't exercise that power, at least not in relation to D503. So that that one number, I think, is is clear. The 13, I think, is also clear. Um, Zamyatin's father was a Russian Orthodox priest. And so the, the numerological significance of 13, the 1 and the 12, the betrayal, and so on, that works mm. out pretty nicely. But I, I've got to tell you that um, a man I know named um, Gilbert Borman... Um, years and years ago, as a student in my science fiction class, came up with the idea that each of these names was a coded reference to the Bible. That you could, for example... And that's real numerology there, Absolutely. That you could say that D503 might be uh, Deuteronomy 50th chapter, third verse, Hmm. except there aren't 50 chapters in Deuteronomy. So what Gill did was... Think of all of the possible ways of constructing each of the characters' names as Bible references, and he found that for each one, save one, there was a Bible reference that actually helped describe the character of that character. (laughs) He could not find this for S4711, however, until after years of searching, um, he was consulting with a a professor of Russian literature here at the University of Michigan. And the professor pointed out to him that, yes, Amyatin's father was a priest, but do remember that the Russian Orthodox Bible does not have the same canon as the Bible you know from the West. Yeah, there's missing, missing, or no, there's extra books. There are extra books, and one of the extra books is the book of Sirach, and it uh-huh. does have 47 chapters, and verse 11 does bear on the characterization. I feel, if you want, I can, I suppose, dig out Gill's article, which he published in Extrapolation. But the point is that one would never expect the average reader of this novel, not only today, but even in 1920 Russia, to, to be able to pick up on that. But when you ask, is there more behind the, the numbers, I think I think that the letter and the, the consonant and vowel part, that's obvious. I think the the magnitude of the number having to do with social power is also clear once it's pointed out. I think the the numerological reference in 13 and 4711 would both be well known to a Russian audience in 1920, and at least the 13 would be well known to us today. Um, But I think Gil may have figured out something else that was also going on. This is why it pays to have uh, Eric on the podcast, Jenny. Because you ask a little question, and you get a great answer. <laughs> that's kind of you. Um, I I think that's 
absolutely fascinating. Um, now, also, um, related to these numbers and names things, uh, while I was listening to the audiobook the second time, which I, I enjoyed almost more than the first time, it's surprising, uh, because I was picking up not on the plot so much as the lines, you know, the the little, uh, the the way the sentences are constructed, and and yeah, uh, you know, knowing what's going to happen, you can see sort of the emergence of things earlier. It it was a very re-readable, enjoyable book. I'm not a big fan of rereading, but I am enjoying rereading this. And uh, one of the things I noticed was, oh yeah, um, they're all bald. <laughs> Everybody is bald, right? Everything's clear, and everybody's bald. Everybody's round head, right? With gills, sometimes. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, or gill-like. I, it was. I wasn't sure if they actually had gills or if, you know. But his hairy arms are, you know, they stick out. They're uh, unusual. He's got hairy hands. Yeah. Pause, he's, pause. He's, his nose is like uh, his, what I three thirty says. She he has a uh, he holds. She says, "Let me see your hands." He looks at his. Uh, she looks at his hands and then says, "Oh, yeah, it matches your face." And <laughs> to him, that's an insult. It right? is <laughs> because he's embarrassed about his hands, mm-hmm. and yet he doesn't hide them, which I thought was you know. Of course, he he can't hide them because he lives in a society where that's not an option, right? right. Somebody asks you a question, you answer. Immediately and honestly, there's no deception allowed, and he he hasn't quite developed that sense yet. He just has to suffer. So that reminded me of the bald. Reminded me of a movie that I saw a long time ago, and uh, Jenny, I'm asking you about. You haven't seen it, but maybe Eric, you have. Uh, THX 1138. You know the George Absolutely. Lucas movie. Yeah. I think it's a. I think it's a kind of a kind of a combination of mostly we. With a little bit of Aldous Huxley, uh, Brave New World thrown in, and maybe a few other things as well. Um, but the the main character's name is THX 1138, right. which I think is a much more reasonably length name for a, a global society, if it is a global society, or any large community. You're going to have to have more than five or six letters in your in your name sure. if it's going to be unique. Um, and his girl, his girlfriend is La. I thought that was is kind of it sounds even like a uh, a vowel name, even though it does start with a, uh, a consonant. L U H. Her na- his girlfriend's name is La, <laughs> <laughs> and he's Thex. She calls him Thex, <laughs> and he calls her La. And this book we get um, S and O, right? So you do get at least. Um, they they abbreviate it because it's nice and it's friendly to do that, but love. <laughs> it's not, it's, I love you. It's so not um, well, uh, a person's name, you know. THX eleven thirty eight, which is I thought a really it's masterful movie. It's, it's pretty hard, interesting. Hard to believe it was the guy's master's thesis, although the version that's available to us is an extension of that thesis. Yes, but, that's right. But. Um, this is not the only place that uses names and numbers. Um, no, right? a movie and, I pointed out to you very happily that uh, we both really enjoyed. Just imagine. Yeah. Also uses that, the numbered, rationalized future. Yep, and there are even Russian works before this that do that, oh. and m- more famously is the uh, or is as Anthem by Ayn Rand, who's born in Russia, who clearly oh. picks this up. 
Um, I think that book is 1938, it's, it's, which is much earlier than THX 1138. Um, this notion that there's an inherent dichotomy and antipathy between the mathematical and the, the human is, I think, what's at play under, underneath all of this. And mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons that I love, I, I don't read Russian, but one of the reasons that I love this novel, and I particularly like the Gregory Zilborg translation, is that Zilborg manages to capture what I am told by Russian speakers um, is true of the original, and that is that Zamyatin shows a stylistic tension between ordinary Russian and the language of mathematics throughout. So, for for example, in in the most popular popular translation, which is the Mira Ginsburg translation, uh, on the first page of the 24th entry, it says uh, the end of the second paragraph. Hence, if we designate L, hence if we designate love as L, we're we're back to to uh, Lucas again. La Lucas, maybe it's La for Lucas, not for love. But anyway, <laughs> THX eleven thirty eight. Um, hence, if we designate love as L and death as D, then L equals F of D. I'm reading it's the the symbols L, the equal sign mm. F, parent, capital D, close parent, period. In other words, love and death, dot, dot, dot. Okay, that's what the Ginsburg translation mm. says. But in the Zilborg translation, and the second paragraph of the what he calls record 24 ends this way. Nothing about if this, that, and if that, the other. It just says, for death is exactly the most complete dissolution of the self in the universe. Hence, colon, L equals F of D. Love is the function of death. Mm. And that, that is exactly how one should read the symbols if one were reading mathematics. And it is exactly the same play on the the two uh, on two meanings of the word function in both Russian and in English. And the fact that love is the function of death is something that a biologist would certainly recognize that is without death. This goes back to your point, uh, Jesse, about an overpopulated world without death. Love would in fact lead to something horrific. If before we have love, before we have sexuality. We have single-celled organisms. They don't have love, and they don't have individual death. Woody Allen picks this up when he says death is an acquired trait. It is. Death arises as a stage in biological evolution when you move from cell splitting to recombination of gametes. And Zamyatin, a trained naval engineer, a, a widely read man about the world, um, he's got this, and it's captured in the style. It's in the style. So the Zilborg translation, I think, gives us all kinds of insights into what's going on at, at deep levels philosophically, as well as showing us the enormous tension inside D503 as our narrative character, narrating character. Jenny, what, what translation did you read? I actually read the new translation by Natasha Randall, it's, um, I'm just going to look at the date here, uh, 2006, so it's pretty recent. Yeah, so the one I heard was the Clarence Brown uh, translation, which 
which I think was prior to that, 2003, somebody said, hmm. I think. Um, and I thought it was quite good. I mean, not having read any of the other translations, uh, the explanations for what, what you know, uh, the uniforms that everybody wears are called unis, uh, not unifs, as somebody had previously translated. And the logic is, is that is the more logical shortening. People actually do say I'm, he's wearing his uni. And uh, there was a number of it, like one state is one word, and it's capitalized with an S in the middle. Uh, now, obviously, you can't hear that in the in the <laughs> audiobook, <laughs> capitalized S, but uh, that sort of logic seems to make sense to me. I had no problem understanding this book at all, so it's, it was obviously well translated. Uh, was there any distinctive typography or such in your two different translations? Well, I've only read the one translation, so it's hard to compare, but I was looking up what Eric was mentioning, and mine says the same thing. Love is a function of death. Hmm. So it it took it the same direction. Are, does everyone wear a uni, or do they wear unifs? I think they said unif, but I don't know for sure. I actually liked all the little bits about math, like the square root of negative one. Well, he's a he's a math uh, he's a mathematician, right? Mm-hmm. And it, he An thinks engineer. along those lines, and I I think he recalls a line early, maybe in third or fourth record. He says something about. When he was in in his childhood and he was uh, shown an irrational number, mm-hmm. he, he got really upset. He had a panic attack. He had a panic <laughs> attack. <laughs> and he thought that that was a, a, a hole inside of him or something that was in, infinitely insolvable. Well, don't uh, you yeah, think was that's... Square root of negative one or something like that. Yeah. Well, don't you, you think got... that's the reason why it ends the way it does? But before you get to the end, I'm sorry, before you get to the end, that's really important, I think, to know, to note um, that D503 is wrong about the numbers. D503 is an engineer, okay? Mm -hmm. Zamyatin is an engineer. A rational number, I mean, technically, a rational number is one that can be represented by a fixed number of integers, a fixed number of digits in a ratio, okay? A rational number is, uh, okay, so one over two is, can be represented as 0.5, mm-hmm. okay? That's a rational number. Pi is not a rational number. Right. Right. One over th- Right. So you, you can you can rec- you can you can actually it doesn't have to be a fixed number of digits. You, you can represent one over three. That's a rational number, even though the the and the decimal notation it goes on forever. Right. There is no way you can represent pi as a a ratio of integers. Okay. Right. So pi is an irrational number. A number that includes the negative numbers. All right. If it's just along the basic number line, so minus two, minus seven, right? right? Those mm-hmm. are negative numbers. A number that relies on the square root of a negative number is not called irrational. It's called imaginary. Ah, right. That's the, the correct term in mathematics 
both in English and in Russian. I've checked this out with as a And story. of course that is important for the plot of the novel too. Exactly, because the surgical removal of fancy or imagination is a a crucial issue in the book, although ultimately again crucially it does not happen by surgery but by something else. Um, x-rays, isn't it? X-rays? It, it is x-rays. I was yeah, I didn't want to get into what the difference means at this juncture, uh, oh, okay. but it does Keep make going. a difference, right? But the point is that just as in the opening of the first diary entry, when D503 says, I'm just copying what was in the newspaper, I'm just copying what was in the newspaper, when he says, I couldn't stand that this was an irrational number, anyone who knows mathematics can see that even more, he couldn't, uh, he could not stand acknowledging that it was an imaginary number mm. he could not ex- he couldn't stand acknowledging even to himself that imagination was at work in him and so here we have a trained engineer d503 making a, an absolute irrevocable no sense no question about it mistake in the language of mathematics which i think you know is pretty revelatory of the inner turmoil that he's undergoing. Right. Yeah. Do you remember the the place where they're all mocking um, the music, the Scriabin piece that's played yeah. on the piano? And he talks about how inspiration is a strange form of epilepsy. <laughs> yeah. It's a psychic sickness, you know, and I, I... I think that's where my tweet came from now that I think about yeah. that. <laughs> it's possible. I, I, I had a, a dream last night in which I... I uh, found a, a a child hit by a car in a punk in a parking lot, and uh, the child turned out to be uh, a werewolf cub. Uh, and the family uh, was going to eat me after I saved the child. And then uh, I, uh, it, oh, it was an epileptic werewolf cub. <laughs> but I I agreed to tutor the child, so I was not eaten. That was my dream. <laughs> Wow. I think the epileptic part came from the uh, from uh, from this book, and the the damage to the child and the desire to re to rent guess. probably comes from the news these days. I, it could it could it could very well be. Uh... But the exactly how it goes on is something <laughs> we should discuss offline. Yes, it's a it, the, this is a different kind of imagination than the than the one that's. I think, uh, you know, it's, didn't you write a a series of lectures called the technological imagination? Wasn't that you? I've I've published a piece called the technological imagination. Oh, yes. I mean, oh, you're right. The ones, yeah, it was one of my first things for the time. That's how we found you, right? Right. I did, indeed. I did. Uh, Well, that's what science fiction is, is the imagination. And if you are living in the future in a dystopian world, what's the one enemy you've got to have? Uh, for the society, the society wants to get rid of the idea that things can change. Right. Because nobody wants to live in a dystopia, but if they can't imagine anything else. Uh, I, I, this is one of the arguments that I've heard uh, very persuasively against what's wrong with North Korea and why it is the way it is, is because... They are not allowed to imagine anything else. There's no. It, it is a dystopia of a, a large and vast kind, like you would see in a even more so than like Soviet Russia was, much more so, at least in some aspects, or even China, because there, there at least there was a a 
neighbors. There was neighbors who could sort of sympathize uh, with your your struggle. North Korea is alone, and the people there are are unable to imagine uh, out loud because such things get you sent to the camps. I think you're right. I think that uh, a saving grace for the Soviet Union is that um, at the even at the highest levels of control in the Soviet um, establishment, there was a commitment to compete with the West. It wasn't enough to say, we are good. We have to have better ballet um, dancers. We have to prove that we have, our inventors came first, and we're going to invent things you haven't invented yet. We have to have uh, more and better culture, science. And all of these things depend, of course, on change. As you know, the United States blows off an atomic bomb. They've got to have an atomic bomb. Um, we get an H-bomb. They've got to have an H-bomb. We're trying to get uh, break in, you know, a rocket into orbit. They not only try to get a rocket into orbit, they succeed in getting it into orbit first. And this is different from virtually every aspect of the North Korean uh, command structure, with the exception of, uh, of military hardware. Um, they do not want to compete with anybody. They are asserting that what they are right now is perfect, and there there will be no change. Uh, we're, we're not looking for better literature. We're not looking for better poetry. Our literature and our poetry are are perfect right now. We know because the our, the great leader <laughs> wrote it. One of the one of the examples of you know like just how far how deep does the the craziness there go. Is is when they were having uh, famine uh, a few years ago. Uh, there were bags of you know food coming in from the states, and it says right on the bag, you know, made in the USA. Um, it wasn't like, hey, isn't it nice of the international community to look after us? The explanation: it's not. It's tribute. It's the United States paying right. tribute right. to the the great and glorious you know lead I was like that is so far down the rabbit hole like they do if the people accept that it's because they have no idea what's going on in the outside world well and that's what allows the government in this book to put up the high voltage exactly. replacement for the wall and for everyone to just wish that the birds and the nature would just go away and for people not even to be curious about what's outside. One of the things I love about the wall, Jenny, um, it, it's, again, one of the things I think of. Maybe I'm over-reading it here, but I think it's another one of the, the brilliant um, double or multiplicative meanings that Samyatin makes available to us. He talks about the green wall. So certainly if we recognize Bible references here and so on, um, this is an inversion of um, the Garden of Eden. Right? We've oh, got, sure. Right, so we've got that. Um, but the, the, the nominal explanation for the wall being green is that foliage is pressed up against it. So you look out and it looks green. But the thing is, as I'm sure we all know, if you, you know, like if you have a bathroom mirror and a, uh, 
a medicine cabinet mirror and you set them up at an mm. angle so that you see um, an infinite number of reflections back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, every time you're getting another one of those reflections, the light is passing um, again through thicknesses of glass. Well, the fact is that ordinary window glass, I mean, there are many different kinds of glasses. Uh, it's a category of, of state, physical state. But ordinary window glass, the thicker it is, the more it tends to green. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Zamyatin, the trained engineer, is letting us know that, you know, we can think that we can make everything transparent, as with everybody living in glass houses. Mm. <laughs> but the more aggressively we try to make sure that everything is immobily encased in impenetrable glass, ultimately the less transparent it'll be. And paradise will have to be on the other side. Hmm. It's interesting. Uh, it, it, only other uh, movie that I uh, that has this, uh, you know, or story, but is Logan's Run. You know, in Logan's Run, they live in this bubble uh a dome it's it's like a domed bubble city or you know it's half underground or whatever and they all have to uh, love and death again right they have to kill themselves at age 30 uh by jumping into the renewal machine that doesn't actually renew you (laughs) um (laughs) and uh (laughs) and then uh if you don't do that you're you have to escape somehow and um and where to escape, there's no other place except they get outside. They find, oh, the world is fine. It used to be terrible. Well, when they go outside in, in Wii, what's so bad about things outside? It's like uh, Brave New Worlds and outside is, yeah, I guess the people are kind of stinky and they're untrustworthy. But it's not like a hellish nightmare land. There's no routine. As, you don't uh, know what to expect. That, well, that, that is what well, that is. <laughs> what, yeah, that is the hellish nightmare land. Right? Yeah. And it's true, uh, we do like to rationalize our lives a little bit, but <laughs> um, it's nice to go outside and smell, smell the, you know, the nice air. It snowed last night here. I, I, I was appreciative. <laughs> Global warming hasn't made that impossible yet. Not yet. The, the notion of the going outside is, is, is clearly very important. It, it, happens, uh, it happens forever. I mean, it's it's getting out of the city um, that starts the Aeneid. It's uh, it's leaving and ultimately returning to uh, to England and Gulliver's travels. It's Prendick coming back um, to London at the end of the island of Doctor Moreau. Uh, I mean, it's it's breaking out of Diaspora in the city and the stars. I mean, it's that that image. Of, Thinking about that book too. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Uh, it, it is a great book. Um, thinking that, that the whole world can be expressed by a microcosm and then finding that, by golly, there might be a superior alternative, that's an important trope. And what I, if you don't mind, I'd like to pick up on something else about the, the literary aspects of the book. Something, this is not something I su- would suggest that most readers would get, but, but I think some may have had it in mind. You know, there are a couple of references throughout the book to to the person who's reading. And on the last page of the penultimate record, um, that is the last page before we get to record 40, which is clearly not an accidental number because 
40 is 40 days and 40 nights. It's 40 days and 40 nights of um, of rain. Rainful rain, yeah. It's 40 years wandering in the wilderness. It's 40 days that Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. It is, in fact, the canonical number in all of Middle Eastern culture of the what we'd think of as the biblical period of death and renewal for astronomical reasons I could discuss if you wish. But the point is 40 is clearly a significant number in the Bible of death and renewal. And here, record 40 is the only one told after D503 has had the operation to remove his imagination. So it is, in fact, the opposite of renewal at the hands of the, the, the United States. In the, on the last page of the last record that he gets to write before that has happened to him, he says um, that what he, he's, I'll, let me see if I can get the beginning of the sentence. He says, I understand, understood then that even if everything was perishing, it was my duty before you, my unknown and beloved, to leave these records in a finished form. Now that line, my unknown and beloved, I think is the reference to a very, very famous other romantic poem. Um, the poem is um, the, the, the opening book in Baudelaire's collection called Les Fleurs du Mal, the flowers of, of evil or the flowers of illness or the flowers of bad. And the opening poem is called Au Lecteur, to the reader. Mm. Okay, now this poem, um, the last line of it, last quatrain, I, I won't bother you with the French, although it's beautiful in French. Uh, in the English translation, it says, um, it's ennui, it's boredom. The eye charged with an involuntary tear, he dreams of the gallows while smoking his hookah. His imagination is all. You know him, reader, this delicate monster, hypocrite reader, my fellow creature, my brother. Now, why do I think that that this is, uh, besides the fact that the words come on, um, the same because it, it's the book. It's maybe the single most famous modern book of romantic poetry. Um, it would be known by everybody in in France and in Russia with a good education because French was the language of the intellectuals, mm-hmm. and Zamyatin read French as well. Um, this, and lived in Paris later. Indeed, and this direct dis- discourse to the reader is just what D five hundred three picks up. He talks about him as beloved, but notice that word hypocritical, right? There's, there's two languages going on here. It's what I'm saying and what I'm meaning. But if you've read Le Fleur du Mal, you'll know that the single um, most recurrent uh, image there is that of the voyage. And in, in poem after poem in, in this collection... The speaker tries to reach happiness. He does it through romantic means. Uh, there's one called uh, Les Cheveux, the hair, um, in which the, the speaker is touching the texture of his beloved's hair, and he's smelling her hair. And as he becomes more and more fully invested in the physicality and, and beauty and imminence of her, he begins to think 
of, of how he can express this. That is, the poem itself talks about how he can begin to start to write the poem. And as he is able to begin to achieve the writing of the poem, the attention on the process of writing the poem tears him away from the full investment in the physicality of it, and he can't make that connection. The voyage is never complete because we're always stopped by the, the self, and the self is always represented by the effort to write. And I think that's what we get throughout this book. D503 wants something better, wants in every way for society, for himself, the, the, the people in his life. But he, he keeps writing these messages. And eventually the worst thing that can possibly happen to him happens. His imagination is removed. So the last line, um, when he says, um, on the transverse avenue 40 so there's that number again in the very last paragraph mm -hmm. we have succeeded in establishing a temporary wall of high voltage waves and I hope we win more than that I am certain we shall win for reason must prevail and as I suggested to the use of mathematical language reason is not the opposite of the irrational in this book at a deeper level reason is the opposite of the imaginary mm -hmm. And now there is no imagination at the end. I, I disagree with those folks who read this book as saying that it's ultimately hopeful because there'll always be more revolution. The last word in the novel, it seems to me, is... No, know. it's much more 1984 yeah. than... than uh, I mean, it doesn't... The whole book doesn't play itself as a as nearly anywhere as depressing to me as 1984. But it's because there's kind of a... Um, uh, it it feels bright, you know. Um, it, it doesn't. <laughs> things are not good, but the thing is, is until they crush out the imagination, they know it's not like the society is being lied to exactly. It's just that they all believe uh, the propaganda, right? The propaganda is it's a. It's it's true that you can do things more efficiently, but the, that isn't the only value, and that is the only value that's being valued by the majority of the people. Well, right. pretty much everybody, right? Either believe it or they they assert that they believe it. Right. Right. But have, the, have access to the inner thoughts, and then only complexly by inference of one character. I mean, one of the, one of to me one of the the, the beauties of the novel. Is that we don't we, we know that I three thirty intercepted D five oh three because the MEFI wanted to make use of the integral. But what we don't know is whether or not I three thirty ever comes also to love D five oh three, or is mm. she always just using him? And Well, what, yeah, he has that he has that moment of doubt quite but we uh, well, sorry. Right, yes he has, but but we never know, right? No, we we have our hopes. <laughs> um, but yeah, we don't know. You know, with no disrespect intended to my wife, um, the fact is, um, I know what she thinks and I know what she feels about me and our relationship, only because I have decades of experience. I mean, right. um, people can lie, people can dissimulate, people can be hypocrites. D five hundred three is a hypocrite. 
He's even lying to himself. Well, yeah, that's the primary person who he is lying to. Uh, you know that that scene where he's he's he says I should report her, but I have forty eight hours. Uh-huh. I have forty eight hours, uh, and then oh, I was sick. I was sick. It doesn't matter, right? But forty eight hours is such a long time to report a crime. I was thinking, why would it be forty eight? Why not twenty four hours? Why not? So I don't I don't know exactly why, but. Like okay, maybe you're sick. You don't. You can't go to the the guardians right away. But uh, 48 hours is surely enough time to you know get on that telephone and and say I'm sick. Can you come? <laughs> it's just um, he's he is at war with himself, and it shows up on the page. He's 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 so unreliable as a narrator that we he can't even trust himself from page from from day to day. Right. Let me ask you, Jesse, um, do you think there is a connection? Well, I th- I'm sure there is a connection, but I think you would understand it better than I because you studied philosophy more extensively than I did between the, the duplicity and untrustworthiness of what we read in this first-person narration and in The Republic, the concept of the necessary lie. Hmm. It's it's it, it is essentially the same thing. The the big lie that we tell everybody is that the guardians are good, uh, not the guardians. The 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 gold. It's classified into three: the silver, the bronze, and the gold. The golds are the philosopher kings. Now, technically, we all know that uh, says Plato that uh, some men are not meant to be leaders. They're just they don't have the right constituents. They're they should be lower down. Um, and it's we can allow some movement here or there, up or down the scale, right? But we can't say that because we p- need people to believe that they are proper in their place. And so this is where it, you know it connects over to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World with the with the alphas and the betas and the deltas and the gammas, right? Mm-hmm. The 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 big lie there is turned into a reality in a certain sense. Because the alphas are like fully functioning, uh, intelligent people, and the betas are uh, more of the guardian class, and the the deltas, I guess, are the janitors, uh, good at doing repetitive tasks and you know eating breakfast, but not not anything else. And that in that case, the big lie has been made real through natural selection. Uh, not natural no, no, selection. they decant them and at different they, ages. Right, right, yeah, and they, but I think they decant. The deltas into alcohol or something, right? Is is right to stunt them and 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 cause difficulty. So, um, yes, it, it's absolutely connected. I think I think they're the same thing. It's just it's not worded the same way. Mm-hmm. I, 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 another thought that that I've been rattling around since Jenny uh, was talking about the the hairiness of D five hundred three. I have no idea what. What Russian school children learn about their own language, um, but I, I imagine that they realize that the word Tsar is the Russian version of Caesar, mm-hmm. and the German word Kaiser is the German version of Caesar, and so um, the notion of the emperor, the most powerful monarch, um, being somehow a Caesar is 
widespread in, in European culture and European languages, and it goes all the way back to Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. um, D503 says that he's ashamed of his hairy paws, um, but I330 sees that they correspond with his face, which mm. of course is presumably the, the benign part of him that can tell us something true about him. The word Caesar means hairy. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Is he going to be the king? Well, in the sense that that his aim is to co-opt the the mechanisms of the state, right? He eventually comes to take the integral, which is not only a ship, but we're told on the first page of the novel it's meant to impose mathematically faultless happiness on others as if that oxymoron could be believed, you know, mm -hmm. mathematically faultless happiness. And it, it stands for all of what the state does because it is, after all, the integral, the, the grand summation. Um, his aim is to, uh, he goes along with the method. Yes, I want to take over the, the apparatus of the state in order to overthrow the state and put something else in its place. Um, does that mean that he's going to be another Caesar? I don't think so, but that's how Caesar himself comes to power, right? Right, yeah. yeah. He says, we don't need kings, let me show you the way. <laughs> Crosses the Rubicon, and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, you know, the plot of this book also um, reminds me of the space merchants. Um, now, the world is not exactly the same. It's completely different kind of dystopia in a certain way. Um, there's lots of propaganda, but there it's not coming from the state exactly. It's it's from everything but the state, basically. Uh, but it's about a... Well, I guess the state is... The state is going to send a rocket to Venus to bring civilization there, right? And that's that's ostensibly what, what, what moves the story along. Um... And I, I don't know if C.M. Kornbluth or um, Frederick Pohl were familiar with it, but it, it seems to me this this book's, like, just in the science fiction, non-fiction books that I've got, books about science fiction, Zemyatin's book doesn't stand very tall amongst, you know, the works that people talk about. Why, why do you think that is? It should, It's It's I the think. fault of my class. The professorial class, yeah. The go the golden uh, ivory tower dudes, yeah. They've they've screwed it up. How so? Well, I, I think that uh, that Orwell has been well. Science fiction, as you probably know, does not enjoy much critical discussion um, as science fiction. I'm not talking about critiques of Shakespeare's The Tempest. Um, right. Science fiction doesn't enjoy much critical discussion and much critical attention. And frankly, um, without it, it was able to not enjoy much uh, popular uh, if high quality evaluation. I mean, people just thought of it as, as junk. Um, it's a it, it's beneath consideration um, until World War II. A little after World War II, it a little bit begins to start having some some criticism. But at the time that the GI Bill begins to expand um, the interest that people have in uh, popular literature for a lot of reasons having to do with the new pedagogy that's necessary to, to deal with all these people coming in and a professoriate that has to multiply itself quickly. Um, at that time, English 
courses. I mean, this was true in freshman English courses all over the United States. I'm guessing it was true in Canada as well. English courses began to pay special attention to Orwell. So Killing an Elephant became uh, an essay that everybody wound up reading. And Politics in the English Language became an essay that everybody wound up reading in freshman English. So if, if Orwell is the guy that you want to read and you want to read his thoughts about language and you want to put them into, uh, into fictional form, you look for the, at the appendix on Newspeak that you find at the end of 1984. And so if you're going to read science fiction at all, you wind up reading 1984. And, you know, how much science fiction can you read since that stuff is all crap, right? Um, even Theodore Sturgeon said so. So, of course, that's not what he said. I'm being ironic. But, but I, I think what happened is that in the university structure uh, for decades, uh, people were quite satisfied that they knew what, they, what was important in dystopian literature by looking at, at 1984 and then its famous British precursor, which was um, Brave New World. Like, and yeah. it's also true, I think, that uh, the, the, the tradition that we call utopian and to which you rightly uh, connect Plato as uh, the first important document, if you look at that tradition from after the Renaissance, um, which is to say after Thomas More coins the term utopia and makes the world realize that there is a literary genre here. Um, the vast majority of works that you will pay attention to are either English or French. I mean, mm -hmm. right? I'm not talking about, you know, old Italian stuff like Andres, Christianopolis. If you look from the Renaissance on, the vast majority are either English or French. So if you're in an American university and you want to expand your notion of what is in the utopian canon, the first place you look is Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, which was by far the most powerful, politically powerful utopia ever written in the United States. If you want is to look at still readable, by the way, well, is I can read it, but, you know, I read for a living. I, I don't. <laughs> is it readable as in like, can we sit down and read it and, and enjoy it? I'm and sure. appreciate It's a terrible. Yeah. Novel. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we have a disagreement. What's what, Jenny says. Yes. You like it. Eric says no. I thought it was fine. Point on that. My, my short answer to shorten up this long answer is American universities, as they were professionalizing the study of popular literature, were not moved to move to a consideration of what they would have viewed as Russian popular literature. Even even so, though, even if we we dismiss the professorial classes, you know, I, I understand why you know people aren't reading Mac Reynolds and Heinlein in in well, other than Starship Troopers, I guess at 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 the military academies. But like, I can understand why mainstream people in universities are not you know, reading Zemian, but even in like a, a, a big honking, you know, encyclopedia of science fiction, Wells has, you know, two pages and, uh, Huxley has a page, a page or half a page and Zemian needs like four lines. Well, you, first you have to remember that when Glavli, the, the Soviet, uh, office, uh, to control publication, um, was formed, the very first work that they banned was we. Oh, wow. Very first work that they banned. 
it was it now existed because it had been published in uh, in Western Europe in Russian and smuggled back. Um, when under uh, Gorbachev, Glavlit was asked to um, rehabilitate, go through its list of banned works and rehabilitate works that should not have been banned, the very first list of rehabilitated works contained we. Mm. So from 1920 or 21, whenever you want to count this book as having been written, until 1989, or seven, whenever, 88? 88, I think it was, yeah. Yes, yeah. From Well, yeah, 88 is when they began the rehabilitation. Thank you. From that period of 68 years, it's not in Russian culture, right? It's not affecting Russian literature. So American professors of Russian and East European literature, they're reading Bogdanov, they're reading Bulgakov, they're reading Borky, but they're not reading Zamyatin. Mm. And then, of course, Samyatin's total production compared to, say, Wells um, or Lem is very small. Mm. So I think there are a lot of reasons why it but needs more status. I, I, when I didn't even know about it until I saw the audiobook was produced. And then I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I'm, I'm really glad we picked it up. Uh, the only other book that um, is this early that is of this kind that I don't think I've read is uh, the Jack London novel, um, The Iron Heel, which I think is uh, 1912. That sounds right, but I don't know for sure. I haven't read that either, but I, I'd be interested. That's you know, some some people would have been getting Zamyatin on accident because he did such things as collaborate with Shostakovich on the nose. He wrote the libretto for that in 1929. That's pretty well known. Hmm. <laughs> you know, he was pretty active in that artistic community. We kind of see him in an isolated sense because he kept being put in jail and kicked out and everything. But he was pretty well known among the other artists of the time, so... So where did, where would you rank this, Jenny? Uh, amongst uh, you read 1984 and Brave New World, I assume. Mm-hmm. Multiple times. No, I love this one. You know, Ursula Le Guin says it's the best single work of science fiction yet written. Wow, that's wow. what it says on the front of my cover. So wow, I think that's... we can look back at it and see how it's important. But yeah, I mean, I didn't grow up with this one next to 1984 and all those others. Yeah, I read. I've read both of those, the you know the classics in as a teenager, and just we never showed up on the on any of the, you know I couldn't find it in a store and I couldn't uh, I didn't even know it existed. Right. Well, um, yeah, like you guys, I I didn't know about it as a, as a kid. I just found it you know later as a scholar. Uh, but once I discovered it, um, I've been using it in my science fiction course for years. As far as I'm concerned, I don't know if Ursula Le Guin is right that it's the best book of science fiction ever. That seems pretty. Uh, I was I was arguing yesterday with someone that The City in the Stars was was perhaps the greatest book of science fiction ever. Well, she used the word yet, so you could interpret oh, yeah, that okay. as being. You know that year. Uh, she, not, not mean, <laughs> I don't think she means up to 1924. Right. Uh, but I would be willing to to try to defend the position that it's the single best work of dystopian fiction ever. I think that's much more arguable, and I think it's it it has a very good claim. I think. By so the way, too. the Iron Heel turns out to be 1908, but oh, 1908. Okay, but it, it is it is uh is very early. Yeah. I think um, that's yeah right. I. 
I'm going to look into that one because I'm, I'm a fan of Jack London. It's a, it's an easy read, and it's also, if I recall correctly, in diary form. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's, my recollection is that uh, it is in the far future the found diary of somebody who's talking about what life was like struggling against totalitarianism. Uh, ah, yeah. very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, I I'm also I I mean Jenny, you love dystopias, right? You think they're great. Yeah, that's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, it's your favorite. <laughs> my favorite. I, I'm a big fan of dystopias, too. I'm a big fan of utopias and dystopia. I, I did not read uh, Sir Thomas More's Utopia in the original Latin, hmm. but I did enjoy the uh, the English translation that I read. And it is a, I think it's not a dystopia, although I, I've, I've also made the argument that all utopias are actually dystopias, uh, at least for somebody. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, and... Perhaps all dystopias are utopias for somebody, but yeah, it's much easier to get uh, dystopia than it, uh, I, I don't know why the the term utopia is actually used much in science fiction because it's not doesn't actually show up. We're much more likely to get dystopia, but I'd like to do uh, one of the later ones. Century. Like, well, that's in the twentieth century, Jesse. That's true. The nineteenth century, we've got things like the, um, looking backward that. And intended to be a utopias, that is to say, EU topia, um, that are there. It's it's clear whether one agrees with them or not. Um, they're intended to be seen as positive views. And um, William Morris writes News from Nowhere um, as a, explicitly, he says, as a counter to looking backward. Because he views it, he doesn't have the language, the term available to him at that time, but he views it as what we would call fascist. Mm. And so he writes an anarchist, a utopia, called News from Nowhere, um, two years later. Um, and one could, of course, say, well, you know, there are some people who would say anarchy is terrible. Thomas Hobbes wouldn't like it. Um, but you can still tell what you're supposed to think about it, because the implied reader is implied by the text. Uh, there are a lot of utopias um, in America in the 19th century and some even down into the 20th like B.F. Skinner's Walden 2 which I think of as horrible but it's clear you're supposed to think of it as good um, I, I think that the, the term that more coins remember it's a pun yeah right because in yeah, good place and no place simultaneously yeah. exactly so the the utopia or utopia is no place. The eutopia, eutopia, is the good place. And he's writing it in Latin, but he's writing it for an English-speaking court. Right. For an English-speaking court, eutopia and eutopia both sound like utopia. Mm-hmm. So I think that that the the term utopia has inherent in it ambiguity. Whereas utopias, we know we're supposed to think they're good places, like Walden too, or looking backward, and dystopias, we know we're supposed to think of as bad places, like, well, like the world in Zamyatin. But um, the fact that someone might come along and say, I view it differently, I don't think interferes with being able to understand that the reader implied by the text isn't invited for that to do that. But in Moore's text, I think the reader is invited to view it ambiguously. Um, I don't think we want to get into a discussion of more at the moment, but 
but you know the 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 short of it i mean the a clear example is that uh, the foreign policy of the utopians is one that leads to world conquest although its claim is that it leads to that it comes out of pacifism you know it's just uh, the tension between military power and not wanting to have militaries um can't be avoided if you read that novel. So you have to think, well, it could be this, it could be the opposite. Have you, uh, have you read, uh, the Mac Reynolds, uh, sequel to, uh, the Bellamy book? I didn't the, even know it existed. I'm taking it. Okay. With Let me see if I can find it. Um, so Mac Reynolds, uh, I'm really, uh, I, he wrote a lot, but he wrote some books, I think in the seventies, um, he's, he's a sort of super lefty guy and he, he was a member of socialist party in the United States. And, you know, he's kind of like a more modern, slightly different, <laughs> um, uh, equal rights sort of guy for Jack, like Jack London, I would say is sort of his, his similar thing, but he wrote a, a number of books and novels. And one of the ones that I, I'm trying to spot it. I think it's called, there's one called Equality in the Year 2000. Hmm. Let me see if I can control F it here. Equality. Yeah, Equality in the Year 2000, 1977. Um, and it's a, uh, I think it's, I believe it's a looking, it's a, like a sequel to Looking Backward. Um, uh, and it's like looking even farther backward or something. I think there's a number of sequels to it. But he wrote a number of these Utopia books um, and he always started with a different premise. He, he would say, okay, what's the problem going to be in this utopia or dystopia? And the problem was always like, there's no jobs because robots have replaced everybody. So everybody's bored <laughs> or, um, you know, there's a, I think it, one of the books he has a graduate student is the main character who is always looking for jobs and he'll go anywhere in the world to, to, to work because um, he wants to work. And the, the major problem is everybody has a guaranteed annual income. So they, every month they spend uh, all the money they can uh, because at the end of the month, all that money is gone and they get a new set of money. So you can't acquire, uh, you can't hoard money. And the things that you can buy tend to be only consumer goods. So you could like buy cigars or something. Yeah. And he has a, his character's buying a lot of cigars and, and alcohol. And they're trying to find like the problem with the society is there's not enough work. And that, that's just a different kind of problem to solve. And I just thought that was like it's a different way of you know, it is a dystopia, but it's a, it's sort of like a damn it, I I'm bored. That's yeah. not the kind of dystopia where they're crushing your head for all eternity. Yeah. In in Childhood's End, which is 1953, maybe, mm-hmm. um, the overlords come and impose um, what many people think of as uh, utopia, uh, all others think of as stasis, on the human race. Mm-hmm. And there's an island society called New Athens, which thinks of itself as a utopia. But then the narrator has this line that New Athens succumbed as all utopias must to boredom. Mm. And that goes right back to the machine stops. Right. Okay. Which you mentioned before. 
once you have perfection, you are you're stuck on a dependency of it on it, and uh, progress ends, and it's just sort of the uh, the social equivalent of biological monoculture. And well, I think this podcast is perfect. Therefore, it should. It should dot, bore everyone. No, no, it should end. Not done, done, because it's perfect. Ha, ha, ha. Um, Jenny, you got any final thoughts? Nope, I don't think so. Oh, I okay. mean, I've been noticing a lot of the musical stuff, but that's just a personal interest of mine, so. Oh, so what, what's what's musical in this book? Well, other than the piano and the uh, the she she puts on special clothing, uh, old fashioned clothing to play. Yeah, well, I think that it just caused an emotional reaction inside of me because Scriabin, in particular, Scriabin piano music is among my favorite. So this idea that it was being used as a representation of all that was wrong, <laughs> I don't know. I, I know very little about music. I'd love it if you would share some insights, Jenny. Yeah, well, Scriabin is highly passionate, very um, romantic composer. The music is chaotic and dynamic, and um, so we should post some along with the podcast. I think that would be a sure. Good idea. And I guess it, I just don't. It's as opposed to the music we had in the story, right? Right, which is very measured and repeated and patterned. It's the opposite of that, and that's a society I don't think I. Could yeah, it live sounded in. like scales or something like do re fi ma. Right. right. You know, like, <laughs> it just it sounded like. Very uh, not imaginative music. Right. Yeah, it was a source of humor, right? People thought it was a joke, or they thought it was... Right, uh, she was pathetic. brought in intentionally for people to laugh as a group about it, to, like, right. dismiss it. But yeah, it that's, that's what's so interesting about this society, is, is that it's not that things are being suppressed as much as uh, it suppression is the normal thing. So you can study something stupid, but everybody knows it's stupid, right? So you're allowed to have this music. You just you wouldn't do it because it's a joke, right? It, it, some like it, he talks like I was thinking about how the narrator is educated, and he knows all of our history, right? He knows all the stupid things that we did. But the fact that they're stupid is the is the real education he got. It's not the denying of those facts happening, non-existing. It's that um, the culture has, you know, it's scientifically provable that human beings ha are perfected, right? <laughs> that belief is what is causing the society to be that way, not not a suppression of other other ideas. I think. And that, and that makes it a bit different from uh, Brave New World. Uh, sorry, uh, 1984. Well, but that's only true at the beginning. I mean, because they just, they figure out that people are devolving into being emotional beings that are questioning things, and that's the whole reason for taking away their imagination. Right. So I don't think I'd want to see the society after that happened. No. Do you have any way of knowing, uh, Jenny, um, what the there's a pun in English. Well, I don't know if it's a pun in English. Um, there is a kind of of lilting, light, uh, lovely song 
that we call an air. Mm-hmm. And I-330 bravely dies without divulging what the state wants her to um, by having them take away her air. Hmm. Um, and I think this is important because uh, clearly the the means of uh, of the operation uh, and the means of execution um, are not random. Uh, since the, the the means of the operation has changed from most of the novel until what was finally invented later in the novel, and uh, since there are all kinds of ways of execution, but but I three thirty is under a bell jar as if she were um, a specimen, and she is being used as an example for the population, um, and it's evacuated. The air is taken out of it. Um, sound imagery um, is different from sight imagery. Sound imagery is ambient. It's hard to know its direction. You can't hear things as far away as you can see things. We don't have ear lids the way we have eyelids. And when we're asleep, we can still be alerted by our sense of hearing, whereas we can't by our sense of sight. So there are all kinds of crucial differences in the way sight and sound work um, in culture, in narrative, in our understanding of things. Um, In English, at least, the lack of air that I-330 dies from seems to me a little bit allied with the deprecation of imaginative poetry that we see with R-13. But I have no idea whether or not this would work in Russian or if it's just coincidental that the word air sounds like air. Oh, hmm. yeah. Hmm. It, it's There's a lot of stuff like that where you're saying, is that is just the, the happy accident of the translation? And you don't normally have that when it's written in the original language. You can just assume that it was it it works as part of the story. But if the if the particular translator put that set of words together just that way, um, you know, it's it sort of it it's sort of like breaking the fourth wall a little bit mm. and takes you out of the book uh, in questioning those lo- those tiny little details, which I guess we don't have in in uh, other English dystopian novels. There's a, there is so much going on in this, and I'm, uh, I'm very pleased to have read it. Good, I'm glad. It's been Me one too. of... I, I just read it for the first time in April, and it's definitely one of the highlights of my year reading. Wonderful. I looked up the Russian word air, and there are six words for air, and I don't know which one they use for, <laughs> <laughs> for a musical term. I'd have to do a lot more research. If you if you do stumble upon it or force yourself to discover it and you find it out, um, I will. Thank you. Yeah, I'll look. I'd, I'd love to know. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs>